Hi, I'm your host, Tom DeSavia. Join me as I interview guests from music and entertainment from around the world about what they're up to right now. Stay tuned, because we're gone in 30 minutes. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Gone in 30 Minutes. I'm your host, Tom DeSavia, and very extremely humbled and honored today to have one of the great jazz musicians of this and last century, spanning two centuries, Elliot. Right. Uh, That's the great drummer, Mr. Elliot Sigmund. Welcome, Elliot. Nice to have Thank you. Thank you so much. Nice to see and, you guys. And, and, and as my, my co-pilot, my co-host, the, the wind beneath my wings, as they say, the man to make sure I don't fall flat on my face, <laughs> um, a great, great, great jazz producer, Mr. Nick Phillips, who... I might add, has just compiled an upcoming uh, box set, uh, Bill Evans' box set called Everybody Still Digs Bill Evans, which Mr. Zygmunt is quite featured on, and that'll be one of the things we'll be talking about today. But I just start things off as we ask everyone we're, when we start this show, what are you up to right now, Elliot? Uh, well, for the last year or so, I've been isolating. It's been a, a miserable period for uh, live music, for sure. Um, just recently, friends are getting vaccinated. I was vaccinated, so um, been playing a bit in the house. Uh, been doing a few little gigs here and there. Nothing to write home about. Um, I guess the biggest thing is to be able to play in the house. Prior to the pandemic, I had lots of rehearsals here. I was leading my own band for a couple of years. We rehearse and just try to play at least three or four times a month, just sessions. Uh, I was saying before, um, there's a really fertile uh, scene here in northern New Jersey, very close to Manhattan. Teaneck itself has always been known kind of as a jazz town. Uh, Sam Jones lived here, Nat Adderley, uh, Milt Jackson lived here his whole life. Rufus Reed is here, Mike Richmond. Lots of guys to call on. I, I can put a great session together just in my, my immediate neighborhood here. And... Uh, so there's a lot of playing. I mean, the thing that makes this part of the country and this part of the world unique among everything worldwide is the fact that people love to play and they don't equate music with money. And uh, a lot of people of all ages are still interested in getting together and making music and exploring. So that's a wonderful thing. It's starting to open up a little bit. And uh, but honestly, uh, I think my career has changed inalterably with this pandemic. I don't see myself getting on airplanes. Uh, I don't see myself doing the kind of touring I was doing pretty much until the pandemic hit. I was still going to Europe a lot each year, going to Japan, doing things that uh, I was starting to question, you know, how much longer I can be doing this at my age. Uh, and the pandemic kind of said, well, uh, I guess you're not going to be doing it much longer. Don't worry. You know, and, <laughs> and uh, it looks to me like it's going to affect life pretty drastically for at least the next couple of years. And I'm at that age where, you know, I'm, I'm ready to do things more, more locally and just even in my own house and feel content with that, you know, and, and do the occasional nice Nice concert, nice conditions, nice money, maybe a small tour somewhere once airplane travel uh, solidifies a little bit, you know, but I'm in no hurry to run out. I'm also uh, a kidney transplant patient. So in spite of the fact that I was completely vaccinated, uh, they still don't really know what my uh, 
immune response is or anybody in my my shoes and there are thousands of us millions of us probably in the country and uh, so i've got to be as cautious basically as i was prior to to vaccination so uh that's something to live with you know i need something to deal with you know really quick on that and then i want to hand over to nick but it's funny this has been a, a common theme on this show because it sort of came up as let's talk to people while COVID is going on and one of the you know, silver linings, as it were, from this thing is that it seems to be bringing back regionalism a bit, something that's been sort of wiped out by Starbucks culture. Oh, okay. And the idea of, you know, a local music scene and something really you know, significant or, you know, a bunch of players getting together to play regularly. I mean, do you see that as a positive that could come out of this is that you'll be maybe playing more frequently. You said you come from a, a, a you know, the, the well sounds good there. Doesn't sound like you're going to be want to find people to play with. Yeah, I mean, there's no problem with that whatsoever. And and yeah, I mean, looking forward, I, I, I really, uh, I'm into it. You know, it seems to me a much more logical way to proceed at this point. And, and for me, at this point in my career, as opposed to when I was younger and really hot to be out there and, and get as much exposure and play with people uh, that I'd never played with, I, I'm fine with, with a more mellow approach to it and just... There are so many great unknown musicians in this world, and with all that's going on in college education, there's just more every year. These young guys just get better and better because the educational tools and the people that are teaching them are, are giants, you know. And uh, there's there's just you know, if anything, the problem's on the other end that there's there's no market to accommodate these guys and. What are they going to do as they get older with with this current uh, live music situation, and the fact that there just isn't enough work? You know, there just isn't enough work for these people. So they all they all have their solutions. Everybody's got a way of of getting by. Musicians are very resilient and very creative, but it's not like I was like it was when I was a kid, unfortunately. Yeah. But to answer your question directly, yes, I look forward to an active scene here whether I could travel around the block or around the world. Uh, Scott Robinson lives a couple of doors down from me. He always stops in when there's a session. Uh, there's just guys like that all over town, not to speak of the guys in Manhattan across the George Washington yeah. Bridge. You know. I, I think it's so, healthy for the next generation to, to, to wake up and have consistent music around them, as opposed to consistent music being thrown all throughout the world. It's, it's having it be in your neighborhood, having it, sort of seep into the culture, which I think it, it, it has for years and years and sort of stopped when technology took over and, and understand it. And I think now we're sort of, uh, you know, going, going back a little bit to just feeding our soul in a different way. And I think that's going to be one of the benefits of this thing. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I mean, the big, the big equation is, uh, are people going to have enough money to survive, to be able to practice, to be able to practice their mm -hmm. art? And, that, that, that's really a concern among a lot of, a lot of young cats I run into. How are we going to make a living, especially now with the pandemic? Fortunately, I'm at that point in my life where I don't have to worry about that like I did when I was in my, you know, raising my kids and up there schlepping around with drums everywhere I could make a dime, you know. So <laughs> somehow I've survived that. <laughs> well, speaking about well, schlepping drums here for a second, so... Um, you know, do you remember the first time you played with Bill Evans? And what was oh, yeah. what was that like? That must I, I probably I probably remember that clearer than 
stuff that came after, you know, because it was so striking. Um, well, to show you how things have changed, back then, Bill would basically hold open auditions at the Village Vanguard. He had a week of auditions, and he basically spent the week auditioning drummers. Um, I was one of those drummers. I, I arranged uh, with Helen Keene, his manager, to, to get a set. And uh, coincidentally, I was working a trio gig uh, for months at that point. So my trio chops were in pretty good shape. It was kind of like a commercial jazz group that would expand to a show band on the weekends. But basically, it was piano, bass, and drums at least five nights a week. And we played a lot of jazz tunes. Jazz was still part of the... Uh, so-called pop repertoire and, and uh, so I went from the Persian room that night I remember I played the first set there I borrowed uh, the other drummer's rivet cymbal because in my mind I remembered the early records with Bill where the sizzle sizzle cymbal was just kind of swishing away in the background and uh, made my way down to the village vanguard being a lefty I had to turn the drums around which is always a, to a total total embarrassment <laughs> and uh play not that comfortably because the small tom is on the other side of the set where it's not supposed to be it's supposed to be right in front of me but uh i think uh because i was playing every night and because i kind of knew eddie and marty and i didn't know bill but i i had followed these guys and uh i think i was fairly comfortable and i i i fit right into the trio and i had a, a very good feeling about the set and uh, Bill let me play the whole set and uh, came over to me after and said, yeah, I really dug it. I, I'll probably give you a call. You know, and he was very brief, very not unfriendly, but very noncommittal as well. And uh, and I couldn't sleep basically for 48 hours after <laughs> that until, until he finally called. I mean, you got to understand back then getting a gig like that with somebody was was the difference between night and day between being in the basement and being on the hundredth floor of a skyscraper, you know, it was just, it was magic, you know? And, uh, so when he called, I, I was just, uh, you know, I was knocked out. So when you asked me, do I remember God, do I remember that set, you know, as so opposed you, to once I joined the trio, I mean, things just blur together. You're playing so much in so many different places. So, this was, uh, uh, you said it was an audition at the Village Vanguard, but it was an audition in front of a live audience because you said you played. Oh, yeah, you played in front of a live audience, yeah. And there might be two or three guys that auditioned before you, or, you know, depends what set it was. Back then, they did three sets a night. And probably it was the third set because I had already done half the gig at the Persian Room. So uh, I think that night, Ed Sof had auditioned, and uh, I forget who else. But, I mean, every every... Buddy was auditioning that week. Bill Goodwin, uh, oh. other other cats, and uh, you know, I, I was very lucky. I was very lucky in the sense that I had done a lot of trio playing on that Persian Room gig, also with Vince Guaraldi. I lived in California for four years, just prior to that period, and worked with Vince pretty extensively. Another great uh, learning lesson and, and a way to develop my trio chops. So I had a lot of experience and I was relaxed enough that night to kind of give it my best shot as opposed to being uptight and nervous and, and kind of blowing it, you know, and uh, yeah. I was very lucky, you know, 
uh, I think back to some of the recordings we've done, you know, You Must Believe in Spring comes to mind. I was just talking to somebody about that last week because that's being reissued. And that was a case where, you know, through hook and crook and luck, we got the trio at its best, you know, and it was a very good trio with lots of good performance. But a lot of times you go into the studio, there's no audience, there's no audience, there's no feedback. And you may get a good thing, you may get a mediocre thing. And that was one of the few albums I did where I walked away thinking, we really caught the trio at its best on this album, you know, and it's lucky when that happens. And it was lucky for me that night that I was relaxed enough to give Bill my best shot, you know. Yeah, well, that's an all-time classic Bill Evans trio album. It's one of the great ones. Yeah, yeah. Did you guys ever rehearse? Uh, obviously, you had no rehearsal when you did the audition. You just... Right. But was... Did you actually rehearse or was it more about developing the repertoire overnight after night on the road? Yeah, it was the latter. We never rehearsed. I mean, occasionally for a record date, we'd, we'd go in a couple hours early and run the tunes in the studio. But uh, Just a couple hours earlier. I, I think once in my whole period with Bill did we go out to his place in New Jersey and have a rehearsal, but I can't even remember what it was for. Might have been for a record as well. I'm not sure. But uh, generally, we didn't. No, Bill, I think, assumed by that point in his career that whoever he hired had pretty extensive knowledge of his repertoire. And uh, if he hired you, he he was happy with what you were bringing to the band. And yeah, we just developed. He had a very, very consistent first and second set. So if it was a concert, you pretty much knew there were going to be 10 to 15 tunes that you played a lot. Um, so by the second month with the band you, you kind of knew what was happening if it was a club you know maybe the first and half of the second set were pretty set and it got most exciting in clubs on the second and third sets when he'd start pulling out things that you knew from records but you never played with him and uh that was like a dream come true i i can't i mean you know it was like you know the introduction to autumn leaves or something you know like wow you know here i am playing with bill evans i mean jesus Right, you know, and uh, so the clubs were really exciting. And the great thing about that period was we still got amazing opportunities to play in clubs most of the time. So you'd go on the road, not for two days or three gigs or one week. You'd go on the road for six weeks, you know, and four and a half of those weeks was playing five, six nights a week in the club. So it was just, you know, nothing to compare it to. You know, the music became completely conversational after after a minute you know we weren't playing music anymore we just kind of bullshitting each other on the bandstand i mean significant bullshit but you know what i'm saying you know (laughs) (laughs) define significant bullshit (laughs) you were talking earlier about like being relaxed for the audition were you just naturally a chill cat I mean, how how were you relaxed? Like you knew you were facing a life-changing moment there. Uh, I don't know how I was relaxed, to be honest with you, other than the fact that I had played that night already. Um, I don't know. I mean, the other thing is the Vanguard is such an ideal place to play with a trio. Uh, I had never worked at the Vanguard up until that point. And uh, so it, it was just very very comfortable eddie was very supportive smiling at me kind of giving me a nod yeah you know you're cool man and it just felt good you know i yeah i mean i'm i'm pretty chill you know i mean 
I may be anxious inside, but I don't always show it. You know, I guess my exterior is pretty chill. But, uh, yeah, I was definitely excited, but I wasn't so excited where I, I blew it, you know. And, uh, and that's happened to me. I know what that feels like, you know, to be uptight, to be nervous, to, to not, not be able to do your best, you know. So, fortunately, like I said, I, you know, I, I really think the gods were smiling down on me. That whole period of my life, actually, was a, was wonderful. You know, I got plucked. I mean, I, I also should preface this by saying, in New York at that point, it was much more an all-around freelance thing. So mm. tonight I might play jazz. Tomorrow night I'd be playing some club date out in Brooklyn for Hasidic people. The next night I might be back in a singer somewhere. You know, so although I loved playing jazz and that was my main thrust, I didn't necessarily see myself becoming a jazz musician. I did a fair amount of studio work at that time. And uh, I think if any of those things had opened up an opportunity to me similar to playing with Bill, I might have, you know, I might have ended up going in that direction. A lot of my friends at that time became really hot, hotshot studio drummers, moved to the West Coast, whatever, you know. And uh, it just, I, jazz was smiling on me in a way. And, I, you know, I love jazz. I mean, certainly it was probably my my favorite way to go if I had a choice. But at that point I was open to whatever I could do to have a middle, you know, a relatively middle-class life and still be able to be a player, you know. You played and toured and recorded with Bill Evans, you know, starting from about 75 to around 78, a few years. What was your sense of your role in that trio? I mean, you listened to the great Bill Evans trios throughout the years, including the one with you and Eddie and, they all sound different, but there's also that conversational style. And how do you feel that you fit into that trio in particular that with Eddie playing bass and Bill? I, th I think I was very influenced by the early trios. And I was also influenced by, I guess, Live at Montreux with Jack DeJanet and Eddie. Um, so from my standpoint, that influenced me. But I also, I love the way Paul played. I love the way he played time. I love the way he left space. Uh, and I think at that point, I was very interested in leaving a lot of space, a la Jack DeJanet, not necessarily laying down real heavy swing beat. So I think those were the things that were on my mind. To, to add color to the trio, to leave a bunch of space, and also to slow it down a little bit. I, I had noticed uh, with Marty and Eddie over the years, it, it got kind of rushed. Uh, it felt like the band was rushed. It didn't feel like Bill was always relaxed. And I feel there's a lot of space in my ride beat between the beats. And, and somehow when Eddie and I hooked up, I think it, it, it allowed Bill to just breathe a little freer and to maybe take his time. I think the tempo slowed down a little bit and they didn't get, they didn't, uh, we weren't speeding that same way. I mean, occasionally on an up-tempo, you know, it could gather some steam, but still the tempos remained pretty near to where they started. And Bill felt relaxed. I mean, I, I really wanted, my whole feeling in a trio is this, I want everybody to feel comfortable and relaxed. And I, I have no trouble being the subservient guy. I have no trouble carrying water for Bill Evans or Michelle Petrucciani or Vince Guaraldi or any of these guys that's that's what i love about being a drummer I'm, I'm i'm the guy underneath that helps that i see being a drummer kind of a little bit as being a carpenter you know you put up that 
that bare frame, and then you let the bass player and the piano player put the sheetrock on, hang the pictures, do whatever they're going to do, paint the molding. But I want that foundation to be secure. You know, I want, I want these guys to feel comfortable. You can walk over there. You're not going to fall through the floor, you know. And, and I, I think it worked, you know, and I get a lot of feedback about it. You know, people sort of heard that trio as, as somewhat of a return to the past, you know. And I dug that aspect of it because it was a little, mod, a little more modern, too. Like I said, Jack was a really, really big influence on me at that point. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, because for, for many of us, especially uh, uh, many from my generation, our, our introduction to jazz came really in two ways. It was, you know, from the, the great standard singers that were still doing TV, obviously, you'd sort of seep in and you'd cut, sort of understand, oh, that's jazz, I guess. But how jazz really came into my life was through Mr. Giraldi. Uh, okay, that's it. Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown. It was like it was cool enough for peanuts. It was cool enough for us. And that was when you could really, you, you really got the sense. Yeah. Of this is jazz. What was it like? How did you two meet up? And was that at the, as playful and joyful an experience as I want it to be? And if it wasn't, please lie. <laughs> <laughs> no, I loved playing with Vince Guaraldi. Vince Guaraldi was one of the all-time great swingers, man. He he just yeah. swung his butt off, you know. You'd sit down. I mean, we played these clubs like Basin Street East or Basin Street West. He he always had a nice gig on the strip there, whatever it was called. The North, what is it called in San Francisco? The, I forget the main strip where the jazz clubs are. Oh, oh we Broadway. always Broadway. Which one? Broadway. Okay. And, time, yeah. and uh, he always had a nice concert somewhere that we drive to in one of the, the suburban cities, or you know out a little bit of a distance and uh it was just fun and i actually got to meet charles Schulz. i did one of the peanuts tv shows um it was a great experience and uh i just i love working with vince i was really broke up to hear when he passed you know and uh yeah. he was a really sweet guy very took good care of his musicians and loved to swing i mean if i had to describe him in, in three words that would be it you know I mean, he was a real swinger and real fun to swing with. No, no, no issues about tempo or speeding, dragging. You know, really love to swing. Well, so, and, and it must have. Did you realize at the time, like we're reaching, we're reaching, we're we're, we're spawning a whole generation of jazz musicians <laughs> through these cartoons? Because it was the consistent. It didn't matter if the voices changed. It didn't matter if the yeah you know, the actors changed. But that you know. Well, that, I'm not sure if I was if I was aware of that. But I mean, he certainly got good response wherever we went, you know. I mean, I moved to California as a hippie, more as a hippie than as a jazz musician. We lived <laughs> up in Sonoma County for two years. We completely dropped out and then finally needed to come back to reality, came down to San Francisco. So working with Vince at that point was like, I don't know, it was, it was an elevation akin to working with Bill in New York, you know. I mean, I was just kind of, you know, grubbing along out there. I, again, I had no idea what direction I was going in, you know. There was so much social stuff going on back then. And jazz was part of it for me, but for the vast majority of people I knew, nobody was relating to jazz. It was all, all the, you know, Grateful Dead or whatever, Janis Joplin. I even did some rock playing out there. I mean, but, uh, you know, jazz was my love at that point. Vince Guaraldi, Mike Knock, uh, Ron McClure was out there. I did a lot of playing with Steve Swallow out there. Uh, Art Landy was out there, played with him a lot. Uh, 
it was a very fruitful period. And also I left New York with my young wife and we had a baby out in California. New York seemed overly oppressive at that point. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I could break through in New York. There were just so many great musicians here and so many people who were so, 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 so serious about the music. I felt like I just needed a change of pace. And California was really, really helped. You know, it was a good place to be at the time. Then when I moved down to San Francisco, I was kind of like a, a big fish in a small pond, you know, somebody that knows something about bebop, you know, it was interesting. What made you move back to New York after finding your moved, California? Moved back to New York in late 74, right before I joined Bill's band. My, my wife at the time wanted to go back to school on the East Coast. I, w- I wouldn't have moved. I, w- I would have stayed out there and probably made a career out there, but she really wanted to come back. New York, when I was living in California, seemed tremendously ominous, like a big, big, dark cloud on the East Coast. But, you know, sure enough, we came out. We settled in Park Slope. Life was cheap at that point. You know, you could have an alternative lifestyle without somebody in the corporate world and survive. Uh, (laughs) I remember living in Brooklyn and driving to Great Gorge, New Jersey, to make $48 at the Playboy Club, and it was actually worth my while to do it. So that gives you an idea of where rents and salaries were. I mean, my, my rent on the first apartment in Park Slope was $85 a month. You know, it was like a six-room wow. floor-through. It's probably rents now for three grand, you know. I mean, it's like, so, you know, you could, you could have a life back then without worrying about, you know, fiscal disaster. Again, for young musicians now, fortunately, those, those times are gone, you know. Circling back to the uh, Everybody Still Digs Bill Evans box set, in which you're very well represented because the entire disc number five is a previously unreleased live performance of uh-huh. the trio you were in with Bill. Do you remember anything about that night or that Not year? <laughs> <laughs> you know... I've listened to that before, but refresh me. Where, where was, was that? that oil can, oil can Harry's. Okay, yeah, yeah. Vancouver. I remember the gig. I remember the gig because it was a wild place. Um, I don't remember the music. I don't. I mean, I remember the gig in the sense that I remember the physical aspects of the club, but I don't. I don't remember anything that happened. And I, I'm sure none of us were aware it was being recorded. You know, it's it's a miracle that uh, that it surfaced and that through the good graces of you and Concord, we got paid. Because <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you, man, I'm on a lot of European bootlegs that I've never seen a dime for, you know. And every two years, they come out on a different company's label, and uh, it's amazing, you know. <laughs> yeah, Concord and Kraft Recordings definitely. Concord and Kraft. The musicians, yes. the respect they deserve. Yes, yes. Yes. And the box set looks beautiful. It is such a beautiful. Yes, I, I have it. I have it. I just haven't gotten around to put that one on the. Uh, but I, I've heard it previously somewhere, you know. So, I, but I, I will listen to it. I don't. I don't have the set that long. Yeah, it was. It was originally recorded for a radio broadcast. So. Oh, okay. So you and the audience members heard the performances that night, and then whoever listened to that broadcast. But then after that, the tapes were archived, and now it's going to be heard for the first time by everyone else who's interested. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I'm looking forward to it. Well, I I can't believe it, but as we predicted, this was going to go really fast, and we're nearly out of time. 
I know. That's what I said. It's been part one of 27. I have so many. I'm glad I got my Giraldi question in there. That's been, that's been tugging at me. Um, before we say our, say our goodbyes, though, uh, just for our audience that still is tethered a bit to, to home, wondering if you have any uh, recommendations of what we should be reading, listening to, watching, looking at. <laughs> I don't know. I mean... Uh... I don't listen to anything specifically. I, I I fall in and out with a particular classical piece like uh, that I'll stick with for a month listening to. I, I'm really into Bach choral music, Mozart's choral music. Uh, I I love Mahler. I I'll, I'll mm. stick with a symphony of his. Um, anything that turns me on. There's some great radio stations in New York too, WKCR and uh, QXR and uh, so, I mean, a lot of times I'll just turn on the radio, one of their jazz shows, and Phil Schaap is on that, you know, archived on that on that uh, station. In terms of reading, I read whatever I can get my hands on. Right now I'm, I'm in the process of reading John Updike's and the whole Rabbit series. I got fascinated by oh. that. That's a four-book series, so I've been... I've been really involved with that. It's fascinating. And what happens to me at this age when I'm not that active, especially with the pandemic, is... I start to feel like the characters in a book or somehow the stories or the feelings sift through me. So I end up dreaming about them, you know, fantasizing about them, feeling a lot of the times the way they feel in their books, you know, so that, that, that's really interesting too. And I, I, you know, I watch my share of Netflix and prime video. I mean, we're, we're hotly involved in watching Borgen now. I don't know if you guys watch that <laughs> on, on prime video. So yeah, I mean, we enjoy that stuff at night, my wife and I, you know, I mean, listen, man, I'm on I'm halfway on my way to being an old fogey. You know, what can I tell you? I got three grandkids and, uh, you know. <laughs> well, I, I can't wait to get to Jersey to see you play. So that's going to be the thing. So now I can come up and yeah. play. We did a podcast. Remember me? Yeah, well, I hope you get out of here, man. Yeah, yeah. And by the time you do, hopefully there'll be things happening. I actually have something at the Jazz Forum next month with Mark Mornelli's new place in, in oh. Westchester. So, uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm hoping things get a little bit more back to normal this year. Well, well music is going to help us get there, my friend, as it always does. Yes. So, yes. yes. Sure. Uh, Mr. Zygmunt, Mr. Phillips, thank you both for taking the time. Oh, thank you. This was really fun. And everybody, that's it. We're gone in 30 minutes. We'll see you next time. Say goodbye, gentlemen. Great to see you guys. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. This show was presented by Craft Recordings. Thanks for joining us for Gone in 30 Minutes, produced by Laura Saez. I'm your host, Tom, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>